While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Last night I woke up at four in the morning, uh, wide awake, st- thinking about work, stressing about life, mm-hmm. uh, and I did not go back to sleep for another two and a half hours. I, it was awful. I don't. What did I don't. You, what What did you do? Like not to not to wake up, but like what did you do in that time when you were awake and there was I, nothing else to be done about it? I spent twenty minutes in bed. Just lying there, being upset about it, and I got up. <laughs> I got up and I went to the computer, and I. It's the 21st century, so I got on Facebook. You know, I looked at Facebook for a while, and then uh, I played on the computer a little bit, and then I read uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance for about 45 minutes. I hope I don't forget all the stuff I read. <laughs> Because uh, then by about 6.30, I said, well, I need to go to sleep. So I went to sleep. Because that's always the thing is when you when you wake up like that. And I, uh, I've been having the most boring dreams lately. Like last <laughs> night, I had a dream that I was at, like, because I, you know, I do the tech writer thing uh-huh. during my day job. This is for the benefit of the, of the listeners, mostly. <laughs> and sometimes I have to go to these big presentation things and I, like, live blog them which just involves typing everything that's said on stage and I have to take pictures and I'm doing all that stuff. So like last night I wake up because I had this dream where I was at one of these, but I couldn't find a good seat. Like I I got up from a seat. I went and found another one, but it was bad too. And then I tried to go back to my previous seat, but someone was in it. And then I woke up like, what kind of a dream is that? I feel like I should be able to do better. But anyway, my point, my back to my original point is that it's always hard to figure out like when you should cut bait and just get up and do stuff. Precisely. And like how much sleep you're depriving yourself of. Welcome to Overdue. Uh, It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And hopefully we are either keeping you up while you are suffering from insomnia or helping you sleep. By being as boring as Andrew's dreams. <laughs> Andrew, before we move on to the book that you read this week, what? so is that the most boring dream that you've had ever? In recent memory. I mean, I don't, I don't, I rarely remember dreams, even, even if I like tell them to Susanna or something. Like sometimes I'll, I'll have dreams that I'll like lose a tooth. Oh, that means you're going to get money though. Does it? That's the common belief, is if you dream about losing your teeth, it means money's coming your way. Well, I'll let you know if that happens, but <laughs> okay. so far I can't add any evidence one way or the other. <laughs> uh, just after high school, when I worked at Coldstone Creamery, no, you cannot tip me and I will not sing right now, Andrew, stop. Um, I worked at a Coldstone <laughs> Creamery, and before I got promoted to assistant manager, <laughs> which got 
which occurred within my first two months of working yeah there. i was gonna ask how long did you work there to like climb that ladder not very long the guys running it had just graduated college so you must have, you must was, have been a good singer it's pretty good i'm pretty sure that's um, why they that's i why had they distinct you. memories of just mixing ice cream i don't know if you've ever been to a cold stone it involves what are called spades you're basically chopping ice cream with blunt knives and like chopping up reese's pieces into it see the the only ice cream i've made is mcdonald's soft serve which involves dumping cold white goop into the top of the machine and then ice cream comes out of it when you pour when you pull the lever so okay so the chopping of cold stone ice cream involves a lot of like work with your hands and forearms i distinctly recall having just days of dreams that were just shots of my forearms working on ice cream like there's nothing more boring than dreaming about your own forearms i'll tell you that much (laughs) unless you're like popeye like that maybe you like your forearms then i don't know i'm not even gonna attempt a popeye voice andrew this is a podcast ostensibly i am what i am (laughs) that's terrible um where we talk about books that we've read books that we've been meaning to read uh recently we've started reading more books that have been suggested to us uh by very generous listeners andrew what did you read this week uh this week i read the sparrow by mary doria russell who the heck is that um she's she's a novelist <laughs> well i pres okay did not but by your earlier uh, information, I did not know specifically that she was a novelist, so I just learned something. Yeah, right? she's an American novelist. She was born in 1950. Um, she's she's a contemporary writer, so as usual, there's not as much like established scholarship on on her or like what strange beliefs about fairies <laughs> she may or may not have had. Okay. Um, she was born in a Chicago suburb. She graduated from the University of Michigan. Uh, now she lives near Cleveland. Um, she's primarily known for being a sci-fi and historical fiction writer. Okay. Um, her first two books were uh, sci-fi, and then it was two historical fiction novels. And then the most recent one, named Doc, is, uh, according to Wikipedia, it is a Western and a murder mystery. Ooh. And it's set in Dodge City during 1878. You got to get out of Dodge. Just got to get out. Apparently. <laughs> so what I found interesting about uh, Miss Russell as I was reading about her on her website is she that... She does have a very, very cute website. She does like have a cute website. her and her husband holding their dog. It's yeah. very nice. I so, like, like okay, so, sideline whatever the heck I was going to say. I was impressed <laughs> that I was clicking around her website. You get to the part where it says her biography. There is literally one paragraph out of three devoted to her. And her life, the other two are devoted to her, to her husband, and her son, and her daughter-in-law. Like a third of her biography is about her. The other two thirds are about people that she likes. I think that's and her dog, which I think is pretty. That tells you something about a person. It's nice, yeah. Um, but you you were saying she graduated from. I guess we weren't gonna. I thought we that might have opened up like a path of discussion, but it, apparently that's it's pretty it. much all I can tell you is she has a PhD in biological anthropology, which I guess does focus into the focus does uh, factor into this book a little bit. Uh, I did read a little bit about how she came to fiction writing because she didn't 
her first book was The Sparrow, right? Yes, right. Which was published in 1996 when she mm-hmm. was uh, 46, for to believe her birth date. Um, she, which she had a, like a full career in academia, and she was teaching in the in the 70s and 80s. And from what I was reading, she was downsized in the 80s, almost took a job at the University of Calgary. But people were upset that it might go to an American rather than a Canadian, so she didn't take the job. <laughs> uh, and she moved on to a bunch of freelance technical writing. Uh, and after her second novel, the sequel to The Sparrow, had been published, she was even in an interview talking about her like CV and that the novels would be buried among like lists of technical nonfiction and manual writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got into this book in particular, and this might kind of launch us into talking about the sparrow, because kind of her study of culture and social anthropology. Uh, she started writing the book around the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage to America, like 1992 or whatever, right. mm-hmm. and. She was interested in, at that point, the the kind of what the heck were these Europeans doing moving to a new continent and then causing a bunch of havoc for the people who lived there. Uh, and the, you know, you can't evaluate those people as if they knew all the things that we know today. Yeah, one, one could say that, that that sort of thing factors into this book. <laughs> one could say uh so let's so let's dive into the book what is the sparrow about it's is it technically science fiction can we get that out of the way right now um it's it is science fiction but um you know there are different sub genres of science fiction there are just different approaches to to we've talked about that talk about it so um so where foundation was sci-fi but it was like very political in nature okay um, this is sci-fi, but with a little bit of anthropology and like a lot of theology mixed in. Interesting. All right. So it's sci-fi, but it simultaneously, I mean, the main question that it grapples with is that, is that big one, you know, if, if there's a God, why does he let bad things happen? Oh, that's a pretty big question. Yeah. Okay. I know. <laughs> uh, so what. That aside, what is the setup for the book? What do we need to know plot-wise to have an informed discussion? So I will I will say that the last like 10 or 15% of this book, and I say percent because I did read this on a Kindle, so I don't know what the page numbers are, <laughs> but um, it gets pretty heavy, and the whole book builds up to it in such a way that I don't want, I, I want to try to discuss the book without ruining that part for everybody so we can't i mean we we i'm gonna run through the basics of the plot and everything and we will you know we'll we'll go through most of it but um i want to stick to like an overview of the plot and the themes and like maybe the structure of how the book is actually written without ruining the the last part of it for can anybody. i can i guess that does the ending of the book kind of take a stance on some of the themes in a way that that would diminish the earlier reading of it it's not even taking a stance on some of the themes it's just like you spend the whole 
book peeling these layers of the main character whose name is uh, Emilio Emilio Sandoz. S A N D O Z is that are we gonna are we cool with that pronunciation? Sandoz Sandoz. I don't, uh, it's probably Sandoz. a Sandoz Sandoz. Whatever you said is fine. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're peeling apart him as a person and what gross. happened. That's gross. During the during the book, and then at the end, you finally get to the heart of it, and it's just it's. I I had a hard time putting the book down like after I got into it, but that part especially is pretty is pretty heavy stuff. So I, I want to make sure that anybody who hasn't read the book yet, who wants to read the book is as surprised with that stuff as I was. All right. So it's set in what for us is like the immediate future, but what for Russell in 1996 would have been like 20 years from then. Sounds reasonable. So um, it's set partially in 2019, partially in 2060. And we'll get to that part of it in a little bit, but. Um, in 2019, Emilio Sandoz and a group of his friends who are, you know, they're, they are, they come from all walks of life. They have like programmers and scientists and all kinds of people who just happen to become friends like by chance. Um, they hear this, you know, one of the, one of them hears this transmission from another planet and determines that there must be sentient life living on that planet. Cause it's like, it's like music from this planet. Oh, weird. Okay. So Sandoz believes that this confluence of events that like he and all these very multi-talented, very qualified people who all happen to be friends all happen to discover this planet. He, he thinks that this confluence of events must be the will of God. And they like, they need to go to this planet and figure out, what's up is there a particular version of god that he is prescribing to it's it's god god like he's a he's a jesuit okay so society of jesus i believe is the i believe is the outfit but yeah it's it's like judeo-christian god but not like but but not just like regular jewish god or like protestant god you're gonna have to what are you what distinctions are you making i'm just trying to figure out if there's a distinct flavor you said jesuit that's fine um i feel i've i've seen science fiction tackle religion previously and i I feel like there it always seems to benefit from from specificity with regards to the version of judeo-christian god that he's dealing with no it's it's just god it's it's god as (laughs) probably a. it's just god it's just god is as a I don't know. Let's say like a like a Protestant person or a Catholic or a lapsed Jewish person or something might might think of God. And so he Sandoz suggests first kind of in jest that, yeah, it must be God's will and that he wants them all to go to this planet and and make contact and just figure out what's up. And, you know, initially he's kind of half joking, but then as as things fall into place like improbably as like they they get past different barriers to them actually going into space and getting to this planet like he begins to believe more and more earnestly this idea that that god is behind the whole mission and that um 
it's important because his his relationship with God initially is sort of agnostic almost and that that's the word used several times in the book to to refer to his relationship with God is like he's he came to the priesthood because he I don't know he came from kind of a bad childhood okay and I don't know there there he had like a mentor who saw something in him and so he joined the priesthood not like impulsively but maybe without thinking through it as much as he might have like he he wasn't a super religious guy beforehand how old is he do you have a sense um he is for most of this book he's in like his 30s 40s okay so, so he's, he's a, not he's a he's youngish a, man yeah he's not a young young man but he is he's in the priesthood established but young enough in his career that you might question why he got there. Yeah, right. Okay. Good to know. Um so they I mean he and he and his friends go through um they they he and a crew of seven other people outfit an asteroid to go to the planet and there there's a bit of hand waving here where I'm not <laughs> sure like how hard science the <laughs> science is to use a term we got into with Asimov. Yeah, of course. Um well, I was going to say... It has something to do with, like, like this is 2019, so people, like, harness asteroids so they can they can mine the minerals out of them. Because that, well, I that guess, makes sense. That's yeah, a like, real thing. Yeah, like, in theory, that's a, that's a solution to, to the Earth running out of resources. But is and there like, any sort of, like, is this normal? Like, do people just up and go to other planets for funsies? No, because there's not really been any reason to do it. Like, this okay, is the first cool. planet where intelligent life has been discovered. Like, there was no um, reason to go to California until gold, is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> there was, there were, like, the mission didn't exist in San Francisco until there was gold first. That's like, was... still, that's still why anybody goes to California, <laughs> is they think there's gold out there. I think we did this goof like 60 episodes ago. i don't know i'm sure that time overdue is a flat circle and we're just repeating ourselves <laughs> endlessly okay so him and his buddies his like his like rock he's band like, or whatever he's like scientists anthropologists medical super group <laughs> take the super asteroid. friends yeah <laughs> and like the propulsion and fuel and stuff, it's like a byproduct of the mining or something. It, and and because of hand-waving around um, the rate that time passes when you're traveling at near-light speeds, like they can make this trip to this planet that's four and something light years away in like six or seven months. That seems messy. I don't know. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So they they go to this planet and they land on it and they start kind of cautiously exploring their surroundings. Um, they eventually make first contact with this race called the Runa. Um, these are sort of like friendly but kind of simple people. And um, how are they described physically? Are they like they're people? They're human? They've got. They're like okay. They're irises. They've got two irises like next to each other in what is described as a figure eight and they've got like fur all over them and they got tails do they stand upright yeah they stand upright but they use the tails for balance 
They have two irises. Does that mean they have one eyeball? They have two eyeballs with two irises each. Four irises. Yeah. Harry all over. Yes. Feel like I saw someone like this on St. Patty's Day. I <laughs> either on St. Patty's Day or like on Sesame Street. I'm not sure. <laughs> the Jim Henson I think, creation. I think Big Bird is just imagining all these people. Um. Okay, they're simple so the, people. The crew kind of recognizes before too long that these, these, this particular group of of beings while like you know they can they can they have speech and they they live in a community and they you know they obviously have some intelligence like they were not the ones who were sending these radio signals that brought them to the planet in the first oh interesting okay um so here is where i want to zoom out for a minute and talk about how the story is being told so i mentioned earlier it's you know it's happening in 2019 and also in 2060 so the framing thing, like what you know about this voyage before you even know that the voyage is happening, is that in 2060, and again the the um, two zero six zero, yeah, okay, two zero six zero, and again like the the thing where traveling at near light speed makes time go slower for you yeah. or something so relativity like, mm-hmm. what's what's six or seven months for the crew on this asteroid is like 17 years for people on earth correct and so it's only been a few years for emilio but it's been it's been almost 40 years on earth okay and um it's it's revealed pretty early on that emilio is the sole survivor of a mission that did not go super well oh okay and that he did some bad stuff while so, he was there. Okay, so that is revealed early in the book so that by yes. the time that Emilio actually lands... Okay, here's a question I have. Mm-hmm. By the time in the percentage of the novel, because I know you read it on your Kindle app, by the, by the time he gets to this planet, do you, the reader, know that it, that it went bad? Yeah. Okay. So then, then you have that kind of dramatic irony of what went bad. How's it gonna go bad? Right. How did this guy who we thought was a cool dude mess it up? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's it's said early on. You know, he he killed a child. Whoa, he was a prostitute. Whoa, like he he did bad stuff. To wait, an alien child. An that's, alien prostitute. That's, that's part of. That's some of the stuff I don't want to get into. I don't want to. Oh, I don't want to spoil the ending. But that's like your reaction right there is what happens when you read that part. Like what? What? Oh, Could man. you go back and explain that again? <laughs> Can you basically like, wait a second and tell me? <laughs> okay. Because I guess like radio transmissions between the two planets, between Earth and Rakat, which is what this other planet is called. Um. You know, they radio contact is pretty consistent and it also travels faster than physical objects than do. It should. Yeah. And so okay. by the time Emilio gets back from the planet, this report about the stuff that he did has been around for like a decade already. Oh dip. Okay. And not only has it really turned public opinion against him, <laughs> but it's Sorry. been really it's been really bad for the Jesuits. Oh no. Who are 
like way fewer in number. Like like they they are not doing great. Like he went away and came back, and all of his buddies were gone. Yeah. Okay. Or not not even his buddies. Like a lot of the people he knew have died, obviously because it's been forty years. Yeah. The society that he belonged to is not doing super well, and um the the parts of the story that happened in 2060 like you were getting these snippets of story from him because there's kind of an inquisition happening going on like between him and the people at the higher levels of the society of jesus because they're you know there there are some people in there who blame him for their for all their present troubles (laughs) and and so they're trying to get to the bottom of, of what happened because they have this report from another group that that arrived later from the UN because of course it was the UN. So they took like a million more years to send somebody <laughs> than the Jesuits did. Like the Jesuits just did it. And the UN people like wrung their hands about it for a few more We're years. We're not they sure. Sent we have to ask 150 other people and then Russia has to have an opinion. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's going to take some time. Yeah. That's how it works. So yeah, it, it's it's known that he did bad stuff. He's in bad shape, like physically and mentally. Okay. Um, and this is all you're you're getting this pretty early in the book, like oh, really, really early. Okay. Yeah. All right. Like first first couple chapters, you're getting this information. Okay. So so he, I'm gonna jump back if okay, we can do it. Yeah. We go to this planet. It's called what? Rakat. Rakat. He um, meets R A K H A T. Okay, he meets these people. They're called what? Uh, the first people with the with the big bird. The eyes. Runa. The yeah, Runa. The, the snuffies. Snuffle the snuffle up a guy, and <laughs> but they're not the ones sending the music. So what is no. the deal? So there's a second race. Cor- there planet. always is called the Jana Atta, or maybe even Yana Atta. It's J A. N A apostrophe A T A. So that seems like an unnecessary apostrophe, but I'll I mean, buy it. Is a lot of vowels. I don't know. I'll accept. <laughs> I'll, we'll accept it. Um, the let's say Jana Atta. Yeah, Jana Atta. So they are they are much fewer in number, but they are more advanced, like technologically and intellectually. Can you do? What do they look like? Do you know? Um. They the interesting thing about them is they have kind of evolved to look a lot like the runa okay at least the the adult female runa who is which is like larger and and um actually conducts most of the business for the runa like the gender roles are kind of swapped which the book spends a little bit of time on okay um but yeah they evolved to look like them so they could like blend into the herd and then just take them out and eat them like so it's straight like it's up very just much, straight up eat them yeah it's very much a wolf in sheep's clothing thing, clothing thing and the civilization has evolved beyond that now oh but that's what it was originally but that's what it was and um you know, oh, the John weird. Oh, still weird. have this have this relationship with the runa where they where the john to like breed them for specific purposes uh, and they like I don't know. They bestow upon them a certain amount of freedom, and the the relations are not initially strained or anything. But they've just been they've been lulled into. I don't even know if submission is the word, but just this. They're very docile. So I am. I'm gonna. I'm gonna suppose something. Suppose away. 
that the coming of some outsiders, that the arrival of some newbies to their planet, some noobs, is going to... If you will. The is, technical term. If you will, is going to shake up the status quo kind of by forcing everyone to explain themselves and kind of unsettle some things. You are you are not far off at all. Okay. So for the first few years of the humans being on this planet, things are actually going pretty well. Like they make first contact, they blend into they don't blend into the community, but the they make a successful first contact with these people and Can they very... speak the same language how does language work because I, I think that's well, uh, emilio is you know can perhaps conveniently a master linguist of course he is who can who has you know who has all the humans speaking and understanding a rough version of the of the runa language pretty quickly interesting okay um do the Jana Atta speak the Runa language? Some of them do. I mean, they have their own language, which is much more complicated, and which nobody other than Emilio even gets like a rough grasp on. Okay, that's. I think that's useful um, to know. All right. So, so it's going it's, okay. It's going pretty well. Um, they, you know, they are hanging out. They, um, Emilio has has this particular little girl who he's like very close to. And, a human uh, girl. Uh. Uh, runa girl excuse me okay yeah. and um and it's just it's going okay like they're kind of learning things from each other but you know some some of the more technically minded members of their party want to get you know they, they saw larger cities when they were landing and they figure that's where the people who transmitted those signals were and they kind of want to move on because they're i mean the runa are pretty simple and they get bored with them Kind I came all the way for this. Yeah, right. I flew <laughs> on these, an asteroid. I came space. all the way here for these snuffleupaguses. No, cl- no, like I'm missing out on thirty seasons of Saturday Night Live for this. <laughs> Let's go. If you're gonna leave Earth, is that the thing you would miss? Seth Meyers is dead. I'm on another planet. Like, come on now. Because in like pick a given like thirty years of Saturday Night Live, live, and you're gonna have like three serviceable years of entertainment that's at least 15 more years of andy samberg videos like come on (laughs) jeez i don't know maybe the maybe the radio communications are sophisticated enough that they could get youtube on this planet so they they, so they basically brought that chronicles of narnia video to this planet is what you're saying yeah and that's what causes all the unrest (laughs) no so, so they get they, they're getting bored of these of these uh, dumbos is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, and they they make contact with this Jana Atta named Supari, S U P A A R I. I'm just doing the pronunciations and then the spelling so that you players at home can come <laughs> up with your own your own stuff if you need to. Okay, who is so some of the, one of the interesting things that Russell does in this in this book is usually you're with Emilio or near Emilio, but sometimes you get into the head of other people too. And so there are a f- couple chapters that happen um, from the perspective of Supari, hmm. and you like through him you gather a sort of rough understanding of the way this world works. So I always the, find that kind of stuff very fascinating. Yeah, um, because you you need to. You need to provide exposition for people without 
breaking them out of the story without like making them wonder why this person who was born into this and would just understand everything about it innately wouldn't feel the need to have this inner monologue that was just a giant info dump. (laughs) Yes. Like you need to avoid the chapter where Emilio just sits down with Supari and is like, hey, let me buy a coffee and you just tell me your story. You need to avoid that. Speaking of Chronicles of Narnia, yeah, like there are there are several passages in that that series where the book just like takes a break from the book for a couple <laughs> chapters to tell you what's happening. Well, and to well, I made a bad Battlestar Galactica reference earlier. You sure um, did. You there's an episode two or three seasons in where after how many seasons of like fearing the alien robot race they show you scenes from their point of view, which is completely unheard of up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it very quickly illustrates a whole bunch of questions and answers a whole bunch of questions that you had about these people. Um, is that the effect? Like, where does that, this Supari chapter kind of land? Does it just feel like yet another perspective? Does it feel like a bunch of answers you wish you you would you would like to questions you'd been asking all along or it's it's around halfway and it's pretty organic i mean it's it's not questions that you would even you had even thought to ask yet really. oh interesting okay. but it's one of your one of your earlier introductions to the the john Otta people at all and um so basically their society is set up so that you know the john Otta they they are maybe 5% of the population of this planet, but because they're more, you know, they, they evolve to be predators just like physically. And also they are intellectually superior or whatever superior. Um, they are sort of on top. And so these, the, the ruling families have one offspring who like the firstborn is the person who's going to take everything over the second born is like the bureaucrat who makes sure that things are running smoothly in the background. And the third born, like you, it's like the vice president. Like you just, you're just kind of sitting around <laughs> waiting for one of your older brothers to die. Okay. Hoping that you get a chance or you can set out on your own and like, and try to establish something else for yourself. But you, you're not allowed to establish a family. You can't like be the head of your own household. Interesting. Like it's, being the third born is not a great place to be. So Supari is the third born of his family. And you, you know, just, just because he's, he's got his eye on moving up. Well, so in that but case, moving up is not necessarily a thing to do, but, but like that, his, his thought process exposes you to a lot of this information without feeling overly, like expository or that, info dumping. Yes, I was going to say, you have an outsider's perspective on a society you know nothing about. Like, you have a mm-hmm. privileged outsider, right? That's yeah. a pretty smart storytelling device because yeah, yeah, yeah. that person has a bunch of uh, feelings about the system that we know nothing about. Mm-hmm. So they are, A, uniquely position to talk about it and be completely motivated to talk about it because the system (laughs) kind of shuns them or limits them in a way that is like dramatic right yeah Yeah. okay so um he's he's aruna comes to him like he he trades a lot with them you know to to his benefit and um aruna comes to him with some coffee beans that she got from 
the you know the the Earth party. Wait, we went through space. We brought coffee with us. Yeah, I mean, we brought we brought a lot of supplies. I mean, if if you like coffee a lot, can you imagine going into space without taking coffee? You know, I had never thought about that until this moment. <laughs> and I, you are correct. If I right. went on a rocket into space, the first thing that would happen after I took my first space nap would be like, "Hey, who brought the coffee?" And then no one would have thought about it, and I would immediately ask to go home. <laughs> i didn't sign up for this i did not sign up for this yeah they they brought coffee and a lot of other things because you know they they didn't know what you know, they were gonna they, find would, yeah would they be able to live on the stuff on this planet at all like they they needed to be prepared and they brought like seeds and a bunch of other stuff too which is gonna be important in a minute here okay but um supari you know they this this runa brings in these coffee beans he comes out to see what's up he meets the humans and initially attacks them but like pretty quickly they establish like they start communicating and the relationship is not antagonistic but the glimpses you get into supari's thought process show that he is he's always looking for his next toehold like he's always He's always looking around himself to see like where his next opportunity is going to be. Is there an implication that his contact... So he is the first contact with the humans from his race? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is there an implication that he would not have kind of partnered with humans the way he did if he were in better standing in, with his own people? Oh yeah. Okay. Certainly. Yeah. All right. I think that that's important. I just hearing it out loud. Yeah. So um, he he corners the market on all. Cause this, this society is very smell based. Like they're very into the way things smell. Like, I he love hates that idea. Way, I hates love that coffee, idea. He hates the way coffee tastes, but the way it smells is mm. amazing. Mm, it smells so good. Ooh, yeah. I don't drink coffee, but I like the way it smells. Oh, uh, it smells so good. You can get behind a coffee beer because it smells so good. Yeah, or even or even like chocolate-covered coffee beans. I, I could go town on some of those bad boys. <laughs> and I have. I can I can get behind so many smells. Let's say that right now. <laughs> not every smell, but... No, not them. every smell. <laughs> But there are plenty of smells that I can't. So he he corners the market on the good smell and stuff that these (laughs) these humans brought with them, and um, he and you know he uses it to further his financial standing. And again, and and later in a in excuse me, what what kind of money do they use? I they have a name for it, but I don't remember. They just just have straight up money. It's just money. It's just currency. They're not trading like shells or whatever. They they do have currency. They have an abstract currency that is might as well be space bucks. Yes, they. I mean, they don't call it space bucks or space space rubles. Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. (laughs) Missed branding opportunity. That's my favorite thing, or maybe my least favorite thing about. It like is video either games, your favorite vid- or least favorite. Well, because I see it, like, if you, you get in this video game thing. Yeah, or of course. even, like, badly written novels, 
where the currency is like space credits or some stupid crap like that. <laughs> I think it's the Kingdom Hearts game. Sure. That weird like PlayStation 2. Yeah. Like half Final Fantasy, half Disney cartoon uh-huh. video game. Was it where the currency is money? M U N N Y. And I I like that stuff because I think it's funny, but I hate it because it's so lazy. I'd rather I'd rather it just be like Star Wars and just be credits. Like at that point it's like we all just acknowledge that money is made up. Yeah. And so we're just going to call it what it is, which is credits. But now Russell subscribes to the school of sci-fi naming where you just reach into a pouch of Scrabble tiles (laughs) and whatever you pull out is what the name for your thing is. (laughs) And I think that's what the that's what the money naming is about here. Okay. (laughs) So he's being an opportunist. He's being an opportunist. Excuse me. Yeah, and and that that is taken to an extreme in the last part of the book that I don't want to talk about. But just just know that 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 motivation of his character is is key to sure, understanding what what he does and why. Um. So yeah, they they establish contact with him, and from there, things continue going okay for a while until they abruptly don't. Is there a particular issue that things hinge upon that you can talk about without like spoiling the ending? So the biggest the biggest thing where like the colonialism comes to bear, like the the you know the parallels between the um the like Columbus thing or like the colonization of America thing. Sure. Is that the um the Runa harvest stuff, like the harvest crops but they are sort of in hunter gatherer mode where they go to where the crops are and harvest them and then come back home. Okay, they don't they're not agricultural. Right. Okay. And so the you know the the people from earth have brought these seeds with them and they you know they talk with Supari and he sees no harm in letting them plant this garden with their own crops. And initially the the runa kind of laugh at them, I'll look at them like digging up the dirt and then just putting it back upside down like look at those idiots <laughs> okay but then they start they start seeing things growing yeah of course and then the runas start growing all their own stuff and they don't have to like walk as far and so they have more to eat and so they have a bunch more sex and a bunch more babies and then there but are the, more the, of them yeah the jana Atta have, have have calibrated the system very precisely where these these specific clumps of runa have been bred for specific purposes and that's all and getting in specific numbers like they 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 keep them in line by like rewarding runa with extra food and stuff and that in turn encourages them to breed but it's all you know it's all controlled interesting so the the runa are having all these babies and then the Jana Atta come to kill these extra babies to keep the herd in control. Uh, and one of the one of the humans starts chanting like we are many, they are few. And oh, it just no. goes it goes downhill from there. So <laughs> two legs good, four legs bad. Yeah, yeah. and I I suspect you might or vice you versa, probably me. see more of the like end game of this in in um in the sequel. 
which I think is called Children of God. Children of God, yep. Yes. Um, but what what you get in this book is just how, the, you know, the, the imbalance that these people have inadvertently brought with them to this foreign ecosystem that they didn't really understand. Yeah, you move, you, you come to a place and you say, Here, oh, here's what I was doing the whole time. Yeah. And you don't and he, realize. And something really great about, you know, this, this is in, this is page 11, 2% into the book. <laughs> okay. Where we're talking about what went wrong and why. Uh huh. And so there, th- these are, these are, you're in the heads of different priests who are thinking about what went wrong with this mission. And one, one of them says, you know, one of them was inclined to believe that the mission went wrong at its inception with the decision to involve the women, a breakdown in discipline from the beginning. He thought the times were different then. And another, another person in the next paragraph thinking about the same thing, the mission he thought probably failed because of a series of logical, reasonable, carefully considered decisions, each of which seemed like a good idea at the time, like most colossal disasters. Oh, so yeah, they, 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 they take this series of steps, you know, everything seems totally harmless and fine at the time. And then it culminates in this thing that nobody could have anticipated, which I think it's how colonialism works a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, like even, even when you don't come in intending to be like the, the conquering race, like you enter into a system and the, the system does not initially have place have a place for you and whoever you are and whatever you're after. And unless you can both, like you have to simultaneously work to accommodate. And if your aim and whether or not this is like morally correct, but if your aim is to change whatever the system is, you have to acknowledge that that system's there before you can affect any change and if and if you're not even there to affect change you're just there to like see what's up which is sounds which is, like these people were yeah, doing which is what they were trying to do yeah that just sounds like you're gonna mess everything up yeah um two um, questions so for you okay sure because we've been in plot synopsis mode for a while so let's do your question and then i want to go back to the big like theological question and then i guess we're we'll be out of time well my okay well so my second question was the theological question so Mm -hmm. that's all right we'll get there okay good um i do i I saw a quote from her um from russell right um that had something to do with where sci-fi maybe was in the 80s uh that it maybe kind of lost its way a little bit um, I, I don't know that to be empirically true. I, she was drawing inspiration from Neuromancer and was kind of citing back to the 60s and 70s, which is kind of going back to our tradition of, of Bradbury and Asimov even before him. Um, I don't know. Is like something... I, I was jotting down notes for this show, and I just wrote, I wonder what the effect of Star Wars was on sci-fi in the 80s. <laughs> Because, like, that is clearly, uh, especially in those films, it was really just, like, space opera fantasy time in space. Space cowboys. Yeah. It was it was a space samurai like, slash yeah. cowboy film. And Star Trek had its part in that, even though I think it also has roots in, in the older style of sci-fi. Certainly. Certainly. I think she's talking about here. But, yeah, it's a, if, if you consider classic sci-fi 
like using fantastical locations and scenarios to comment on stuff that is happening or has happened. Yeah. That definitely happens here. Like late in the book and this is this is getting a little close to stuff I don't want to spoil, but um so you've been you know, warned. Yeah, the 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 you know, the people who are interrogating Sandoz about what happened. Okay. Are, you know, that they there were there was some really bad stuff that went down and Sandoz is saying, you know, you you were not there, you would not understand what this was like. Like these these people are or you know the the races on this planet they're doing some really bad stuff but you know there's no poverty there's no starvation like our version of this is children starving in the streets like are we really better than yeah these people who slaughter babies because they need to keep the population under control (laughs) yeah of course yeah so i think yeah, both both in the sense that she is using actual colonialism as a template mm-hmm. and in that she is commenting on like the stuff that we just let happen oh, as, of a, as a race or like consider acceptable. Just just cause. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, definitely it's if classic sci-fi is using futuristic stuff to comment on present day themes then yes she's very much doing that in this book or or not even futuristic stuff but just stuff that isn't quote-unquote real but right. is like a logical extension of reality mm-hmm. um savior kind of what you said earlier about hand waving vis-a-vis asteroid space travel <laughs> and like super powered radios or whatever um well, so let's get to the to, to the larger theology questions. My my template for this, I'll be comp- completely honest, uh, goes back to something we talked about maybe two or three episodes ago. Is the latter or the initial run of the Ender's Game series, where it was kind of went from this study of like kids in a school and action and whatever to theology and sociology on another planet and this kind of like South American version of Christianity that was very specific. So like, what is the role of theology in this book specifically with regard to the planet that they land on and, and how does it get introduced to another race or two if it does? The theological stuff in this is almost all like internal to Emilio. Like there, there are other characters who are having questions about about religion or like you know reevaluating religion because of some of the experiences that they have. Okay, but um, you know, Emilio goes from being sort of agnostic to you know sort of in jest suggesting that God wants them to go to this planet, and then they do like despite a lot of a lot of odds that were stacked against them. Um, and at, by the time they make first contact with the species and he is like, you know, he, he's doing the, I don't know. It's, it's not like the close encounters kind of first contact thing, but it's the, it's a thing where you sit with an alien thing and you're like, hello. And they're hello in their language. And then you're like, Oh, this is my name. And they're like, Oh, this is, this is my name. Like that, that thing where you're, establishing that you both 
are intelligent and like trying to bridge the gap. You're basically throwing grammar at the other person until yeah, they like understand. Pointing, at a, pointing yes. at a flower and saying what your word for flower is and then they get it and then they start doing the other thing. Like, Precisely. Okay. By the time that's happening and like he's surrounded by these little children of this of this race and like things are going really, really well, like he feels God, I guess, in a way that he never really did before. In this sense of like previously my world was whatever I was wrapped up in and, yeah, and this and other like, stuff is evidence of a higher power. Like obviously God wanted this to happen okay. because it's going super well. Okay. And and one of the things that like early on in their mission, and this is one of the things I, I didn't have as much time to talk about as I wanted, but you know, we were talking about how letting you know early on that everybody dies in a sense kind of takes some of the tension away. Like one of the things that Russell does to maintain that tension is she has one of the crew members who is, you don't get to know that well. Like he's sort of expendable. He dies of unknown causes like really early on. And so like, even though you know that the, the, you know, six of the other seven people are going to die, the tension and suspense comes from like when and from what. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, Yeah. Well, like what, I, will it be their fault? Will it be something that Emilio causes? Will it be something that the other races are doing? Yeah, and it, it it's the the answers are all over the place. But the um the question that comes up when that first person dies is like, why are why are we so quick to praise God for the things that go well, but when things go badly, like we blame ourselves or we don't. You know, hmm. we don't lay that at God's feet, too. Or, like, we're slower to lay it at God's feet, I guess. Which I think is the flip side of how some people wrestle with that whole question. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's the same question, but it's people coming at it from different places. I, like, because your, your statement just now was the good things come from above and we blame ourselves for the bad, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like very much so the opposite is often the case as well. Yeah, like people, yeah. at least, you know, completely outside of this book, right? I think plenty of folks in the modern era are are happy to pat themselves on the back. And, you know, if you want to attribute whatever to a higher power, or you just want to attribute it to circumstance or the the people that helped you get where you are, Plenty of people do not do that, and yet when things go wrong, they will say, it was not me, it was, you know, whatever. It was yeah. fate screwed me over, it was why did God forsake me, it was, you know, whatever. Yeah, but, so um, I really I really think you do need to read it, and I, I <laughs> you know, every week we can't be like, oh, well, you need to read this 400-page <laughs> book yourself to really get it. But That's um, fair. I want to, you know, just to close out, I want to read. Oh, please. Um, a passage toward the end. And this is also the passage where, passage where the book gets its name from. But I, I think that this is really key to understanding the theological stuff that this book is sort of grappling with. Okay. Is um, There's an old Jewish story that says in the beginning, God was everywhere and everything, a totality. 
But to make creation, God had to remove himself from some part of the universe so something besides himself could exist. So he breathed in, and in the places where God withdrew, their creation exists. So God just leaves, John asked, angry where Emilio had been desolate. Abandons creation? You're on your own, apes. Good luck. No, he watches, he rejoices, he weeps. He observes the moral drama of human life and gives meaning to it by caring passionately about us and remembering. Matthew 10, verse 29, um, Vincenzo Giuliani said quietly, I know I haven't used these names in the whole rest of the That's podcast, fine, that's okay. But, um, not one sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Hmm. But the sparrow still falls, Felipe said. And so it's just about, it's about stuff, stuff happens and it's not always God that's doing it, but he knows it happens, I guess. Hmm. And you just kind of have to, to know that and like be, make your peace with that, I guess is what, what I, what I'm picking up out of this anyway. Uh, How do the, how do the other two races I know you said that some of the theology stuff is very internal, but like, does any of this get get broached with the other two species that we encounter? Kind of, and in a way, again, where I don't, I don't like want to spoil anything, but it it sort of it almost becomes. So there's there's this one specific John Atta that great has composed these songs, that the humans here and that, that like starts their mission off in the first place. Okay. And um his his songs are specifically glorifying non-reproductive sex. Like the just the, the act of sex for the pleasure of of doing it. So like Bruno Which is Mars something that we are James Brown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, exactly. He's he is the Barry White of Rakat. <laughs> hey, baby, come to my um, planet. <laughs> but that and it, it, that 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 takes a very dark turn. Okay, later on, but he, the the songs are like glorifying this and like celebrating it and. It all it all comes together in in the sort of pseudo religious but really deeply unsettling stuff that goes on at the end of the book, and that's I, I know I keep hinting around, but that's really as close as I want to get to it. I, I found that that stories that that grapple with other cultures like this that the when they're most effective, they take something that they take a concept that at least in whatever culture the author is operating in, has a pretty standard definition, if it's death or if it's sex or if it's religion. And the alien culture kind of treats it differently or makes something out of it that human culture did not expect, like takes it Mm -hmm. to another logical level that like what you're saying is kind of unsettling. Um, Other books that I've read like, if you encounter a culture that kills someone and and you revo- you know you find that repellent because you killed a person but whoever did the killing thought it was some sort of you know glorification or sacrifice or whatever like how bizarre would that be and they would not think that they had done anything wrong by like 
killing your friend, but they had, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's that type of that type of true alienness is something that I think sci-fi can explore because it doesn't have to deal with the the like thousands of years of baggage that human life carries with it. <laughs> you know? You, we've got issues. We've got just like issues. as a race. <laughs> so if you if you kind of create a species from whole cloth, you can design their cultural heritage and cultural mores in a way that are similar enough to ours, but then like tweak them so that they make us uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. Like the the dark mirror or whatever. Precisely. That you want to do. Um but so okay, we're at we are way out of time. Yeah. You so think I, people I think should read the crap out of this book is what you're saying. It, there's like there's a lot of in the first three quarters of this book, there's a lot of good, like positive, fun stuff. <laughs> and it does, you know, it does go to a really dark place at the end, but I think that I don't know, that that makes the the rest of it more poignant or like more worth reading okay cool you're kind of following the spiritual journey from its beginning to its end and you also get like a pretty good just a yarn you know, parable about colonialism and and whatever like mixed into it <laughs> um there is the sequel has been kind of canonized along with the original book or, or what do you feel would this book would benefit from from that do you, do you get that sense as you're reading it that it begs a sequel or I think it closes itself up pretty well like I I don't it's not like a 50 shades thing where <laughs> not everything is a 50 shades thing Andrew <laughs> <laughs> But like th- those books are really bad as at standing as standalone things and if if you just read this and never picked up the sequel at all Okay. I mean, there, there are still questions that are hanging. Like there are obvious places where you can hook a sequel into this, but I don't know that there's a lot of stuff that that begs for a sequel. Okay, you know? it's not written as such. Yeah, like okay. it doesn't end with the end and a question mark. Well, and neither does this podcast. Um, <laughs> so if we have not covered your favorite part of the Sparrow. Uh, you should feel free to write us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You could also, when we post the episode, you could leave a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, last week when we discussed his Pity She's a Whore, uh, Nata pointed out that the one servant's name or tutoress's name, Putana, uh, means whore or, or some other kind of derogatory term for woman in Italian, which is interesting. Uh, and Annie wrote in to say, that the play is not only subversive, but that she suspects that it's a very cynical play based on where the title comes from. If you listen to last week, you may remember that a cardinal is the one who ends up saying, tis pity she's a whore at the end after the one of the main characters dies. Uh, and that, you know, how could an educated man might be the cause of this murder? And how could such education kind of lead to this behavior? is the questions that Annie raises, which I think are, are good points that we didn't necessarily talk about last week. Yeah. Uh, you can also tweet those points about this week's book to us at twitter.com slash overdue pod. I want to give shout outs to everyone who used our Twitter this week to reach out to us. That includes Sabrina who hashtagged books in the shower. 
when she tweeted at us. I don't know what that means. Um, I think it means exactly what it says it means. No, I don't know what you're confused about. <laughs> I'm just going to keep moving. Uh, Wonderfrau, uh, Jillian, Sean, Elisa, Lee, Amber, Jocko, Cassie, Amanda, Miguel, uh, everybody who reached out to us in Twitter and the real world this week. Thank you so much. Andrew, where else can people go to find out more about the show and to tell us how much they love it? Um, we've got a Facebook page at facebook.com slash overduepod. Did you say that? I thought you just said Twitter. Nope. All right. Well, I might edit that out. Then. <laughs> just leave it we in. Have a, we have an internet website at www.overduepodcast.com. You just fire up AOL and put punch that in there. And, Keyword overdue pod. Um, and you go to overduepodcast.com. We have RSS feed iTunes feed, Stitcher feed, all those things you can use to subscribe to the show. We have Amazon links. You can click those if you want to buy the books, and we get a little cut of that. We've got a link to our Patreon project, which we talked about a few times. It's just an easy way for people to pledge a little bit of money every month to our show and um, also get some rewards. Uh, one of those rewards for people who are donating at the $5 a month level or above is that they can get a book move to the top of the queue so this week you know we read the sparrow which was recommended by cassie um and at this point we like the next eight like eight episodes <laughs> we've got a lot of episodes that are spoken for which is which is awesome um so next week craig's going to be reading zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance um that was recommended by amanda and scott um i am going to be reading for episode 107 a farewell to arms by ernest hemingway uh, that was recommended by Haytham. And we've got a few other people who have donated who are still, you know, we still need to to confirm what book they want us to read. But if you've got something that you really want us to talk about that we have not talked about yet, um, donating is a good way to to bump that up to the top of our pile. And, and and we appreciate any donation of any size. There there are other rewards for other things so go to patreon.com slash overdue pod and check that out if you have some time and that's not to say that you can't still email us your your book suggestions this is just kind of one of the things that all the listeners of the show seemed really interested in doing so we decided to make it part of the patreon to to entice folks but if you if you have recommendations regardless please send them in because we definitely, yeah, definitely appreciate that and it's one of the ways that we know that uh a you're listening to the show because you're sending us email and b we know what you like about the show by what you recommend, so we really appreciate that. So like Andrew said, I'll be reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I'm, I'm about a, almost halfway through right now, and it is not the book I expected, so buckle up, I guess. Or no, it's a motorcycle, so don't buckle yeah, up. Yeah, they Just don't have get on bikes. the bike, I guess. Put, get, put on your helmet. Put on your helmet and goggles and get ready for next week. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you then. Until then, try to be happy. So, Andrew, what is the setup of this book? What the heck are we talking, about, are we talking I have about? to throw my cat out of this room, so I will be right back. <laughs>
Newman loves birds. Newman doesn't get to go outside, but he would love to eat a bird. So by talking about the sparrow, we are exciting Andrew's cat Newman, who would really love to eat a bird. Andrew, who you may continue. Who's eating a bird? I was vamping by by talking about Newman's desire to eat a bird. What if I just wanted to edit everything out? <laughs> well, I was vamping in case you didn't want to. Well, thank you. Thank you. You can go it. back and listen to it and decide if it belongs in the podcast. I think our listeners will enjoy the raw cut of this episode. <laughs> the director's cut. <laughs> Overdue, unrated, with footage too hot to be shown in theaters. <laughs> How did they cram footage into an audio podcast? All of a sudden, you're listening to it, and your eyes just start seeing naked books. It's weird. <laughs> naked books. <laughs> naked the, books. Oh, we're taking the dust jackets all the way off on this week's Overdue. Unplug your bookmarks. Get ready for Overdue. <laughs> Okay, the setup for this this book because we're talking. This is a book podcast. 